Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. So uh, one of the things I've thought, I'm, I'm going to Israel in a few weeks and um, leading a tour there. Some of our, our church family were going and uh, we canceled it, uh, COVID canceled a couple years ago. So uh, I often thought about how cool it would be to be in the Holy Land on Easter or Christmas. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, although actually, if you watch the actual newscasts, it might not be all that cool. Uh, it's a little crazy. But I realized that'll never happen for me because I wouldn't want to miss Easter or Christmas here. Because missing Easter or Christmas here would be a bigger deal than seeing it there. And um, as I've thought about that, I've done many sermons over the years about missing the people who missed Christmas. You know, there was, there was Herod, and there was, the, there was the scholars that served Herod, and there was the innkeeper, which isn't really in the Bible, but we think there was an innkeeper. Um, all the people who missed Christmas. You know what's interesting? A few people did get Christmas. There was Joseph, and, and Mary, and Anna, and Simeon. There were a few that got it. You know what's interesting about Easter? Nobody got it. Nobody got Easter right. Nobody knew what was happening in Easter. Nobody perceived what was going on. And so as we enter into Holy Week this week, I want us to kind of prepare our hearts and mind because what you think about Jesus and how you think about Jesus will determine what happens during Holy Week. It could be just another little time where you have a little holiday next weekend, you hide some eggs, you know, you have lunch with the family. It could be just a little cultural thing. Or it could be a deeply moving experience that leaves you a grateful with a better perspective, um, a closer relationship with God. And the latter is my intention. And so I want us to just kind of think about the people who missed Easter and um, why we could miss Easter if we're not careful, right? And and the real meaning and the real purpose of Easter. And so I want to share some passages with you. Matthew 21, 10 says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Now, that's an important question because that that seems to get asked quite a bit during um, Jesus' ministry. And no more important time than this one. Uh, so here's what's happening. Jesus has been doing this ministry thing for about three years. And now it's coming up to Holy Week, uh, to Passover. If you know what that is, a Jewish uh, feast in which they remember um, uh, Egypt and uh, the death of the firstborn and the way they were passed over was blood of the lamb. You, know, you have to research if you don't know. So, uh, but it is all symbolic of and points to Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that, that uh, frees all of us from death. And so in coming up into this, this week of Passover, Jesus, for the first and only time, kind of lets himself be celebrated, even though the celebration is really a misunderstanding of what he's trying to do. It is not a full understanding of what he came to do. But he allows that to happen for a couple of reasons, it, it, it seems. Um, uh, one of them is to fulfill a prophecy about how the Messiah, the Deliverer, would come into Jerusalem on a, on a, a colt, <coughs> and, and then, or a donkey, and uh, or a young donkey, which would be the colt. Anyway, uh, which is not how a king would enter a city. By the way, he would come on a war horse. Uh, so there's this crazy dual duality going on with the all-powerful, but coming as a servant. The people didn't get it, but it's all part of him living out what the Old Testament had predicted. And then also goading the religious leaders to actually take what he knew was going to be their action, take action during Holy Week, which is so during the Passover, which is so symbolic that the ultimate lamb died for the freedom of all the people, all right? And so for the first time, he kind of lets himself be recognized publicly <clears throat> in a broad scale. 
So here's what it sounds like in John chapter 12. And, and let me just read this starting in verse 12. Uh, it says this. The next day, the great, he had just had a feast, by the way, in Bethany and, uh, and, and was anointed with oil by Mary. Interesting, she may have been one of the few people who got Easter. Some suggestion maybe she understood what was happening. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, in this passage, I've identified five groups of people and five reasons why we might miss Easter if we're not careful. First group are these people. These people have come, so they are not from Jerusalem. They're not locals. They are Jews from elsewhere, and they have come to Jerusalem for the feast. They hear about Jesus in mass. They come running out, and they're throwing palm branches down, which is how you would rec- you would welcome a, a VIP or, a, more importantly, a king. They come running out, and it seems that they believe that it's, Jesus might come and lead a revolt. It wasn't unusual for zealots to lead revolts during Passover. And so they went running out and thinking, if this guy will become king, overthrow the Romans, all of our problems will be solved. So that's group number one goes on. Um, <clears throat> Jesus found a donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. King is coming, donkey's colt, don't go together, except if you understand who Jesus really was. goes on. Uh, at first, his, second, his disciples. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So that's second group of disciples. Third group. Now the crowd that was with him had continued to spread the word that he had called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. So group coming out from Jerusalem, group of disciples with him, the locals who had seen him just previously earlier raised Lazarus from the dead. So they're coming in from behind. So there are people everywhere. And uh, we'll be there in uh, three weeks or so. Uh, and if you stand in Jerusalem, you look at the Mount of Olives, you look at the way it came, all this stuff. It's all very visual. You can see the whole thing just happening. Where, where the group behind, the group in front. Uh, so the third group is the group that comes to the locals that have come from behind. Um, and uh, in verse 18, many people, because they had heard, so this would be the fourth group here. Uh, these are also locals, but they didn't really witness Lazarus' deal, but they heard about it. So they're kind of secondhand hearers. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And here's the last group. So the Pharisees said to one another, let us uh, see this is getting, out of, getting us nowhere. Uh, look how the whole world has gone after him. So the last group is the religious leaders who eventually put him to death, plotted murder and had him put to death on the cross. Now, you're saying, okay, five, five groups, what does this mean? Let me kind of point out, not maybe, we don't know a lot about these groups, but let me just, in my, so when I read scripture, I, I imagine certain kinds of people, maybe even, it might be a projection on my part, but just go with me a little bit. And, and what maybe these groups might have been thinking or way, where they were in their attitudes or their minds or understanding. So the first group, I'm going to call them the hopeless. The hopeless. They're just the masses. They come running out from Jerusalem hoping that this guy would become king, get rid of the Romans, life would be great. By the way, if you remember back before the Romans, before they were a conquered people, life wasn't that great anyway because they kept doing stupid stuff and getting conquered all the time. So, but here's the deal about helpless or hopeless people, and, and you could call them helpless too, is they perceive that their life can only get better. So there's a song by, uh, by uh, what's that guy's name? Billy Joel. And I don't remember the song, but I remember a line in it, victim of my circumstances. 
Remember, it's not a victim of circumstances like that. These people see their lives as victim of circumstances. And the only way life is going to be better if something outside of them changes. It's kind of the if-only syndrome. They suffer from the if-only syndrome. If only the government would do this. If only my husband wasn't such a this. If only. It's the whole if-only thing. And so they go running out. If only this guy would be king. Now, here's the problem. Kings are not good, generally. There are fairly, they're, they're rare, except in literature, there are rarely good kings. That's why if there are a few that we thought were good, even King David was an adulterer and a murderer. See, kings aren't good. They get hard, they get harsh, they get brutal. Otherwise, they don't remain king for very long. And so the thing that they're if onlying about, <laughs> the thing that they're hoping for, if only we had a king isn't really what they're looking for, isn't really what they need. They're right about one thing. They need a king, but they need a king that is a savior. So this donkey, cult, and king thing doesn't go together in the culture of the day or in any culture. Very few kings are servants as well. You can't name any, neither can I, right? So how is this all-powerful and yet came to save us, doing what is best for us. That's what they're yelling, come save us, come save us, right? Now, immediately, we need it. How does this, someone who's so powerful, but also loving enough to save you individually? It is a juxtaposition that doesn't happen anywhere except in God. It's only in Jesus that we find someone who is all-powerful and all-loving at the same time. So while they don't even know it, what they're really asking for is exactly who Jesus is. They just don't understand it. Now, they missed that they needed a savior, not just an earthly king. It's as if only thinking can really get us off track. Now, I did an interesting thing. I wrote this sermon and identified these five groups. And I was thinking about Jesus. And I was thinking about different times he taught and what he had to say to these kinds of people. And I came across something interesting. And, and you may not find it interesting. You may not find any parallels here at all. I'm not saying scripture lays it out this way. I'm just saying it dawned on me that when Jesus announced his mission, you remember in, in Luke 4? Let's go ahead and bring that up. You guys have Luke 4? In Luke 4, Jesus started doing ministry stuff after the temptation. And he goes to the local uh, synagogue and he reads uh, from Isaiah 61. And he reads these. And then he sits down and he says, and this is being fulfilled in your presence. Today. In other words, I'm the guy that's talking about. Okay? So now notice, there just happens to be five of them. I just happen to spot this. So it may not mean anything. Humor me. Okay, so the spirit of the Lord is on me. Go ahead. Uh, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Second one is, and he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, okay? And to set the oppressed free. So we got four. We need one more. Let's see what else he says here. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you're saying, well, I don't, I don't know how that applies. I, hopefully I can show you how, in my mind, it kind of connected. So we got the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He says he's going to do these things. We've got now the end of Jesus' ministry, the final week of his ministry um, before the resurrection, before the, the, yeah, the resurrection, cross and resurrection. And we see, could I take, and I was thinking, could I take these things that he kind of said was his mission statement and apply them, okay? And the first one, uh, he came to proclaim uh, um, good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Another word for poor, we think of poor as um, economically challenged, okay, poor. We think it's an economic term. But that same term in the Greek could be translated as uh, worthy of pity or left out um, or, uh, let's see, 
deprived in some way. It doesn't just mean economically. And so he came to bring... So what is it that those who are on the outside, those who are deprived, those are, are, who are pitiful, and not in a condescending way, but worthy of pity, what is it that they lack most? Here's what we think in our society. We think we had more money, they'll be okay. They had more opportunity, they'll be okay. And all those things could be helpful. But you know what they lack most is hope. They lack hope. Because if you're on the outside of the system, if you are, if you are left out of the opportunities, you lack hope. And Jesus said, I came to proclaim good news. There is hope. For everybody, there is hope. And in the triumphal entry, he's coming to bring that hope about. You're saying, okay, I'm not sure I get that. Um, I remember one time I was uh, traveling, and uh, I have to take uh, motion sickness, dramamine stuff when I travel because I'm a pansy. And, uh, and I'd had a particularly rough day in India, and we'd had some pretty rough flights, and I'd gotten pretty sick, so I had to take a little extra dramamine, so I was a little, a little fogged. And I remember landing in Calcutta for the very first time, and it was just toward dusk, more dark than light, but enough that you could still see around. And I remember sitting in the back of the bus and through my haze of uh, dramamine, and looking out, and it was the weirdest thing. I have never seen so many people in my whole life. I have never seen, I mean, there were millions of people. And, and on the outskirts of the city, it wasn't even electricity for some reason. So people were lighting little oil lamps and stuff. And it was just surreal. I thought I'd step back a thousand years into some, you know, some medieval situation. And, there are people, and, and the, the, the conditions are not like anything you've ever seen in the United States. And I, I'm just telling you, you think we have poor here? You haven't seen poor. As I'm, riding, as I'm riding through this, just not very slowly, the traffic is incredible, lots of bicycle pedal things. And I remember thinking, it's like ants on an anthill. Just like ants, there's just millions of people crawling all over this disgusting place. And that part of the city was. Um, and I'm thinking, and then I thought to me, I'm just another ant. I just happen to have a better car. If, we, if you exclude God, like Ecclesiastes under the sun, if you exclude God from the equation of your life and the possibilities of your life, how do you come to any other conclusion other than you're just another ant on the anthill? And so, so, well, I live in a better house. You're still an ant. Well, I drive a better car. You're still an ant. Unless there is some transcendent meaning to our existence. We're all just a bunch of ants on an anthill. It doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't matter. Imagine all these people running out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus, thinking, if only the thing I'm missing in my life is a king, if only. And that's exactly what they're missing. But not a king, the king, the only king who could bring about the change they needed, who could give them meaning and purpose in life, who could make them more than just an ant or an accident in this evolutionary process that we've been convinced that we're a part of. Unless there is truly a God who not only intervened to create us, but now intervenes to redeem us. So to this first group, the hopeless group, if you're feeling hopeless today, I, ch- I just stop and check the equation of my life is what I would do. I would look and say, is Jesus really in here? The Jesus who, not only the God who created me, but the one who came to earth to die for me, to redeem me, is that a major part of my equation in life? Because if he's not, I understand why I feel like just another ant. So he said he came to bring good news to the poor. 
The second group are the, uh, the followers, the disciples. I would call them the clueless. In uh, John 12, 16, by the way, I love that phrase because most of the time in my faith, I'm clueless. I'm clueless as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm clueless to what God's up to. I feel a little clueless. Here's what it says, <clears throat> again, to, read, to remind you. John 12, 16. At first, the disciples did not understand. That's, that's a story of my faith right there. I don't understand most of the time until later. And they go, oh, God, you were saving me. Oh, thank you, right? Um, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things have been written about him, that these things have been done to him. So <clears throat> the second thing that Jesus says is not only that he came to, to bring good news to support, but to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. I want to suggest to you, Let's see if this works. That maybe the disciples were prisoners themselves. They're following Jesus. They've been told all this truth. He's been trying to tell them what's going to happen. He's been trying, and he's telling them to get it because they're prisoners of their own limited imaginations. Because if there's going to be a change, it's going to be the kind of change that we can understand, we can predict, we've seen before. They too were believing that Jesus was come to bring about a geopolitical change, overthrow the Romans, establish a new government, and yet God was up to something so much bigger. He was not going to set up a geopolitical government in my last couple hundred years. He was setting up a forever kingdom that was spiritual in nature and would go on forever into eternity. It was so much bigger. And again and again, they kept getting stuck on silly little things like, okay, now when you're the king, I want to, I want to sit here and you're there, I want to do this. I, I want to be the minister of whatever, right? They're always get caught with minor things, missing the major things. You know, the Bible says that God can do more than we could probably at, possibly ask or imagine. I wonder if some of us are believing for lesser things than God would give us. I wonder if we need to stop and realize that like the disciples, we may be focused on this, this little bit right here, and God's going, but I have this. I have all of this. See, here's what happens in our faith. <clears throat> all of us do it. We get blind spots in our faith. They just couldn't see past their little idea of what the kingdom needed to look like because that's all they'd known from the past. King David, that was the best could ever be, but it wasn't. See, their past was dictating what they could expect for the future. Same happens with us. And we get these blind spots. We develop blind spots in our faith. It goes something like this. Oh, sure, I could, I could believe that Jesus raised him dead, and I could even trust him with forgiving me for all I've ever done wrong, and I, I'm, I could even trust him with my forever. But my finances, those I need to take care of. Sure, yeah, God's great. God's good. Created the earth. You know, they, oh, it's even came up with a great idea called love and marriage. I'm just still thinking about came up with what I did. But in terms of choosing a spouse, I'm going to take care of this myself. Why would you do that? Why would you hold back money that God tells you to give to somebody who's in need? Why would you choose a spouse? Do you want to know how many people that have come to me for marriage counseling chose their own spouse? Didn't even consult God? No, almost all of them. So here's the disciples. Oh, Jesus, you're great. You're wonderful. You're incredible. But you got to do things the way I see them done, okay? You got to do them right here so I can handle it. What if God says, I want to blow up that box. <laughs> I want to blow up those boundaries you put on me. I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. And it wasn't until later the disciples went, oh my gosh, he did something that blew our minds. I can't believe it. They were prisoners of their own lack of imagination. I, would, I guess I would, um, I don't know, maybe just tell you to stop this week and ask, are you living according to an agenda you've imagined and you've created or an agenda that you can't fully imagine. 
Are you praying for things that you can come up with or things that only God knows could happen? Life is an incredible adventure when you don't know what's around the corner because God's going to do something bigger than you anticipated. The greatest moments of my life when I've stepped into God and gone, okay, God, I, I don't know what needs to happen here, but I'm going to trust you. And then I get to look back and go, oh my goodness, that was more. That was more than I asked for, more than I could have even dreamed of. I think that's the biblical way we live. What about this Easter? Is there something in your life that just needs to be blown out of the box? Maybe you're settling for just getting by when God's going, no, no, I have something bigger. I have something really, how many, how many women have I talked to whose husbands and a believer and they go, I wish you'd just not be upset when I leave for church. No, no, let's believe for somebody. Let's believe he's going to get saved and become a Christian and start volunteering in the church, start giving money and God will transform his life. Why don't we believe for that? (laughs) I've seen it happen again and again. Maybe there's something that you are bound in your imagination that God wants to do something so much bigger. Wouldn't this Easter, this Holy Week be a time to see that happen? Get past your blind spot. Third group is is what I, I call the oblivious. They saw something, they had the information, but they missed the truth. And it's this group that, that saw Lazarus resurrected and they, they went around telling people about it. And I want to talk about these people that, because they couldn't really see what was happening. See, they were caught up in the, in the sensational, in the headlines, and oh my goodness, there's a guy resurrected from the dead. Now here's the deal, here's what happens. Lazarus gets out of the tomb. Come, they, even think he, they thought he smelled already, by the way. To read the passage. And so they said, Lazarus, come out. So Lazarus, come out. And everybody's like, oh, look at Lazarus. Wrong answer. Look at Jesus. Yeah, a dead guy resurrected is kind of cool, but the one who did it is really... It's not the what, it's the who. Right? Remember when they're, they're on the boat and the storm, all this stuff, and Jesus goes, okay, okay, calm down. The waves, the wind stop, and the disciples go... They didn't say, how'd he do that? What a cool trick. They said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this? You see, the people, they were just all about the headlines. Then saying, oh, this guy got resurrected from the dead. This guy got resurrected from the dead. That's not the conversation. It's who could resurrect the guy from the dead. Who is this Jesus? Who is that? You see, they only had part of the story. They're all excited about the little part of the story they got, but they didn't bother digging deeper to find out who this is. It's amazing he raised somebody from the dead. More amazing who he was. If they had gone past the what he did to who he was, they would have realized why he was coming to Jerusalem. They wouldn't have missed Easter. A lot of people in our society say, well, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm down with Jesus. I'm good with that. He told he good stuff, man. He taught us a lot of good stuff. Yes, what he did was teach in part, but that's not the big story. The big story is who he was. He was God incarnate, come to save every one of us. That's the story. What he did, what he taught, those are great. Who he was. You see, that's why Easter is all about Jesus. Cody said something, I was interested, I didn't put it in my notes, but I thought it was really popular. He said, People come to Christmas to find out about God. You come to Easter to find out about Jesus. And when you find out they're the same, you find out how much God loves you and how much you sacrifice so that you can be reconciled to him forever. And, and yes, this brings a question. Well, what about all those other ways? There are no other ways. This is the way, the truth, and the life. And you need to look a little deeper at that. Well, let's look at the next group then. Because in, 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 in Jesus' mission statement, he said he came to recover sight for the blind, the spiritually blind. These folks got part of the story, but they were blind to the rest of the story. How about the next group? It's in verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. I call these people the curious. The curious. 
And they're not really seekers. They're not really investigators. They're not really even that sincere about it. They're just kind of curious. It's almost like, here's the picture I got. When it says they went out to meet him, it's kind of like, yeah, I'll, oh, he's going by, I'll step outside and look. Oh, yeah, look at that. Son of God, going to die for us. Yeah, good for you. Casual, very casual, very cool, very uninvolved. I'm just, I'm just too cool to get involved. Cody's going to talk about this next week on Easter, one of his points, but I'm just too cool to get involved. I mean, you know, I had a God thing. Yeah, if it's good for you, it's everybody do their own thing. I'm okay, you're okay, right? One thing I found interesting is how appalled we are by the war that's happening right now. And we should be. It's awful. I mean, it's just horrendous. It's terrible. But what surprises me is that we're surprised that this happens. Because somehow we thought we had evolved beyond this. I keep saying, it's, it's just medieval. And, uh, no, no, evil is just evil. No matter when it happens, and it happens. You see, for those of us who want to be casual, live in the West, it's nice and comfortable, two, uh, two cars in the garage, nice house. We got all this, it's all good, it's all good. And then we see something harsh, like, oh, my, oh, oh, oh. I got news for you. There is evil in the world, and that's why Christ came, to defeat evil. And if it hasn't affected you like it's affecting people in Ukraine right now, it's because you're lucky and you live in a good place. But evil will affect you. And not only evil in the world, but there is evil inside of you and inside of me. There is selfishness. There is things that want to say harmful things to others, if not do harmful things. I'm I'm particularly prone to that on the freeway, but that's my own problem. (laughs) I'm interested that this little wake-up call we're getting halfway across the world may call us to be a little more than casual about our lives. And more importantly, I pray that it calls us to be a little more than casual about our spirituality. Because what's happening there is not just of a physical nature, it is spiritual in nature. The evil that is being perpetrated, and the bombs with, this is for the children written on it, what is that? Is that war? No, that's evil. That is raw evil. And we need to realize that there is this world, no matter how much you want to ignore it and deny it, the people in Ukraine could deny that, that there was a dangerous enemy next door, but they can't deny it anymore. And when we come to Holy, we've got to acknowledge that evil was so bad in the world that Christ came to die so that you and I would be delivered, not from the evil, from the evil that is within us as well. Come to grips with it. Come to deal with the fact that there is evil in the world and because there is such evil, there needs to be a drastic solution. And it was Jesus on the cross. And if you understand that and you grasp that and you commit your life to knowing that one who came to deliver us from evil, then you will emerge from Holy Week changed. The problem is it's much safer to stand on the sidelines and point or ignore or look the other way. But if you're caught in the... I remember that phrase, caught in the casual... I remember the first young man I worked with before I became a pastor. I, was, I became a junior high pastor in part because of this kid. His name was Tommy. Tommy, good-looking kid. He was, in, um, he was in a group home. His family was a mess. He had acted out in pretty bad ways. And, and so I'd, I would visit with Tommy a couple times a week. And uh, Tommy was too good-looking for his own good and too smart for his own good. He was slick, man, seventh grader, but he was slick. He had it, he had it all figured out. It was a co-ed group home, not the best idea. Tommy was the man. <laughs> Seventh grade and the man. I'm thinking, where do you go from here, kid? <laughs> I remember talking about Jesus and, and the few times that he would be honest and authentic with me about his life. And it would, it would last just a millisecond, it seemed, and then he was back to being Mr. Cool. And I just kept thinking, 
if Tommy, if I could just get you to put the cigarettes down, put the cool stuff aside. Yeah, the girls are impressed with you. I get it. They're 12. Who cares? Tommy, if you could just put the cool aside and take serious the conversation I'm trying to have, you could change your life forever. Not end up like your dad. Not end up like the mess you came from. If you could just put the cool aside. You sister, I want to say that to our whole society. Whatever it is that's making you try to be, I'm all right, I'm good, I'm cool. You're not okay. You're not all right. You are jacked up just like me. You're a sinner who needs God's grace just like me. You're somebody who's messed up and you have embarrassing memories just like me. You're somebody who's not so sure of yourself as you pretend on social media or in public just like me. You need Jesus just like me. These people, yeah, I'll step out inside and look at them. Oh yeah, cool, savior of the world, that's great. They needed Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. That's why this is such an incredible holy week because I'm so glad he came. I don't have to pretend to have it together. You wouldn't buy it anyway. But let's be honest. I'm a mess. You're a mess. But we've got Jesus. And he changes everything. If you find yourself standing on the sideline and observing, it's a lot easier. But at some point, you've got to stop Move beyond observation to trusting. If he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he came to do, it changes everything for you and for me and forever. Jesus changes everything. And then lastly, the religious leaders, and I'll do this quickly because I don't like them. <laughs> the religious. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Um, they were people who were in a place within the Jewish community in Jerusalem. They were people in place of power and position and prestige. And they would not allow truth to interrupt that, that thing they had going on there. As a matter of fact, they were willing to murder truth. They were willing to put Jesus to death to keep their power, position, and prestige, which is going to look pretty pale in light of eternity. Jesus came... Um, to set the oppressed free, those who were stuck in the, caught in the casual. And he also came to declare the day of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to an Old Testament thing, which was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, all debts would be forgiven. All, everything that weighs somebody down would be forgiven. Debts would be forgiven. You'd be free to get a fresh start. It's a beautiful picture. And when Jesus said that he not only came to heal the blind and set the prisoners free, he came to, proclear, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, to release us from the heaviness in our life. Here's what I believe about the religious leaders. Some may have been just purely, maybe even evil, in their pursuit of, of keeping the power and the prestige and position. Others may have been sincerely, sincerely thinking they were honoring God by trying to keep all of these rules they'd made up. But here's what I know about all of them. There was a heaviness on them. There was a heaviness, a heaviness of performance, a heaviness of legalism, a heaviness on them. And he came to release them from that. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to think about this. If Jesus came to release them, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it, this holy week would be a great week for you to be released from whatever heaviness you have in your life. I'm going to ask the band to come out and the singers. And, and um, it might be the heaviness of guilt or shame for who you've been or what you've done. It might be the heaviness of hopelessness or helplessness. 
It might be the heaviness of having been a victim and that being your primary identity for all these years. It might be just worry and anxiety and doubt. But Christ's death on the cross was not, it was not a loss. It was a victory for all of us. Because in the resurrection, he was raised up. And in, at Easter, we can know that we are raised up without the heaviness, without whatever it is we've been carrying around, without the false if-onlys, without the superficial view of the world, without whatever it is that we need to get rid of to free us, to be more like Jesus, to live a life more victorious. So today, don't leave. This isn't the closing song. This is part of the sermon. Because my goal today was for us to prepare our hearts for Holy Week. I want us to make sure that we enter into Holy Week clean and free and forgiven and grateful and moved by what God has done for us. So that we can, as we leave Holy Week, we can soar, we can fly, we can be all that God wants us to be without any of this stuff in the way. Because the cross took care of it. The resurrection guaranteed that we can be different. So I ask these guys to sing, and I just want you to listen to the words. I want you to think about, is there heaviness in my life? Is there something somewhere that I need to turn over to Jesus, not turn over to just some great... No, Jesus, he's the one who died on the cross. He's the one that can forgive you. He's the one that can heal you. He's the one that can change everything. And I just want you, I'm going to come back in a moment, and we're going to do a little next exercise. But in this moment, I want you to examine your heart. Is there heaviness there? Is there something you need to lay at the foot of the cross and be free from it?
whole bunch of people at the triumphal entry. None of them saw, none of them received in that moment what Jesus was really doing. He was going to provide not for just for their comfort or a political system. He was coming to save their very souls and forever. My prayer is that this Easter, as we think about what God has done, as we go through this Holy Week, we think about what Jesus did for us, that our eyes will be open and our hearts will be open to receive the God who is powerful enough to solve the problems that we're facing. Not only individually, but corporately and as a world, He is the answer until Jesus comes in and He changes the very character, the very nature of a person. Evil will continue to rule in that life in that country, in that place. But we have an answer. We have the opportunity to stand this Holy Week and to say, God, my eyes are open. My heart is ready to receive. Come and change me. Displace the evil and bring your goodness, your love, your peace, your joy, and the victory that you bought on Calvary. And so we celebrate Jesus fully knowing why he came.
there's only one truth, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen. We're so glad that you came and worship with that came to worship with us. And as we go into Holy Week, why don't you tell somebody, come and see a man who changed everything. Invite them to Good Friday, invite them to this weekend. Let them know that there's one truth, and that's Jesus Christ. Go have a blessed week. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.